Good evening, Tony. What's going on? Not much. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm stoked. Episode three, Reform Brotherhood. Here we come. Yeah, episode three. That's like uh, three's a good number, right? Like the Trinity and like, well, the Trinity. I suppose you don't get better than the Trinity. I, I think we could just stop there. Yeah. That's well, this has been a great it. chat. Yeah. All right. See you next week. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely planned the third episode this way. We should have spoken yes. about the Trinity. We should have. That, so, oh, well. inst- so instead, because it's episode three, let's talk about like the exact opposite of that, which yeah, exactly. would be which would be Satan. It seems like this right. is the third episode is like the prime Satan podcasting <laughs> space. You know, I I guess yeah, it it's going to be. Sense. We're going to make yeah. it the prime episode podcast. Yes. I would say something ridiculous like we're bringing Satan back, but that, that just seems wrong in so many levels. So, Yeah, there's a certain uh, there's a certain seriousness and decorum, I think, that's that's probably going to kick in any minute here. But Exactly. Um, so which Satan. Is, which is why it's shocking that we're going to talk about it, but yeah, we're, we're going to give it a go. And I, I would bring it up because – it has been something that I've had some conversations with people about recently, and I want to talk to you about it because I have, as I've been kind of speaking with others about the armor of God, about Satan's influence in this world, that I want to move beyond kind of demonology writ large and kind of talk about some blue collar theology, understand sure. who Satan is, what his character is like, what his limitations are. So without saying anything else, I guess I'm kind of curious Give me how you would describe Satan. How would I describe Satan? So um, I think to start, you have to talk about angels, don't you? I mean, we have to kind of go back to absolutely the way things were before the angelic fall, right? So, um, you know, in, in kind of preparing for this tonight, I tried to look up Satan in a few systematic theology books that I have. And the only theology book that I have that devotes any sizable space to Satan is one written by Mark Driscoll. So I'm not going to quote Mark Driscoll. um, And the book is pretty ridiculous. But I think that in our circles and reformed circles, there's actually kind of a, because we emphasize God's sovereignty so much, I think we tend to sort of play down and de-emphasize the fact that Satan's a reality. Um, you know, we're all, we're all good conservative Christians. And so we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that outright, but I think a lot of times we act like he's not a reality. Um, so you go back, you know, sometime before humans were created, but part of creation, um, God creates the angels. And, uh, most people would say sometime before, um, the garden of Eden, there's some sort of conflict in heaven and Satan rebels against God and is cast out of heaven. And with him, um, he takes a third of the angels and we'll get into kind of like where some of this stuff is in the Bible. Um, but he takes a third of the angels with him. And so these Satan, who was an angel, probably kind of on par with the other named angels that we read about in the Bible, um, in terms of authority and rank and things like that. He takes a third of the angels with him. And now these, Angels are what we call demons. Um, Some people would kind of theorize that there was some sort of like ontological, metaphysical change that happened, um, that they're not exactly like angels are now, that there's some sort of deformity or something like that, which is is a reasonable thing, I think. Um, But what we see in scripture is that these demonic forces now are set up in opposition to God and his forces throughout the scripture. Um, The Old Testament is kind of sparse on details. And then we see sort of this explosion of demonic activity during the ministry of Christ. And then for the most part, through Acts and, you know, in the epistles, the demons kind of go silent again. Um, And then we read a lot about demonic, angelic, you know, stuff going on in the book of Revelation. Um, which ties back to some of the prophecies and things we see in the Old Testament. So that's kind of the baseline, I think, where we start with. And that's an interesting starting point because I I also found it absolutely fascinating that in many evangelical circles, but I think you're right, particularly the Reformed camps, that there is a tendency to polarize our view of Satan. Either it's almost practically agnostic or it's practically paralyzing that we focus too much. And so part of what I wanted to flesh out is what kind of influence does he have? If the scriptures are clear that he's the God of this world and that he is in fact real, how much credit do we give him and how much is too much credit? 
Yeah, well, I mean, Luther, we get our we get one of our quotes in for the night. Luther is known to uh, have said that Satan is is God's devil. And what he meant by that is Absolutely. that Satan doesn't operate outside of God's sovereignty. So um, that doesn't mean just like human sin and human actions, even though they're ordained by God and they don't happen apart from his will. He's not the author of those things. He's not morally culpable for those things. Um, just as when we sin, it's it's our culpability. We're the ones guilty for that. Um, so also when Satan does something, even though it was at God's ordination, his will, it's still Satan's culpability for, for taking that action. But ultimately, God's will restrains Satan the same way it restrains us in some ways. Um, so we know that whatever Satan does, it happens inside of God's decretive will. Um, it's not as though Satan and God are on you know sort of even terms and Satan and God are battling. Um, you know, we talk, we kind of joke about how like we're going to talk about the opposite of the Trinity. And we are in, in a lot of ways, but Satan is not a counterpoint to God. And, you know, we're not talking about right yin and yang and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different misconceptions. You know, everything I learned about demons and angels, I read from reading uh, Piercing the Darkness by Frank Peretti when I was <laughs> 17 years old. Um, and it's funny because I went back um, I don't know if it's still on there, but uh, it was for a very long time. It was on the bookshelf at mom and dad's house. Um, and I remember, I don't know, maybe it was last year. I remember pulling it off and just trying to read a few chapters. And I was like, how did I ever think that this was even engaging writing um, beyond like the theological weirdness? Um, the book was just really terribly written. Um, but I really do. I mean, legitimately, I read Piercing the Darkness when I was like 16 or 17 years old. And I was like, oh, my gosh oh my gosh, there's demons everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's, there's angels everywhere and there's this fight going on everywhere. Um, and I just don't, I mean, I just don't really think that's what scripture presents anymore. So, um, you know, different people have different thoughts. I mean, what do you think? What, what kind of ways do you think, um, Satan is active and like has influence in the world? First of all, can we just both agree that that book is kind of freaky though? It is. Oh, it totally is. Like, cause I, I, I remember reading it. I mean, about really, yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrifying book, especially if you are kind of young and impressionable and you don't, I mean, I, I don't know Frank Peretti from Adam. So I don't know if he, if he thought that he was like, you know, it, it, there's some weird parallels between those books and like left behind in terms of like how they teach and communicate theology. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I don't, I don't know if, if Frank Peretti really thinks that's the way it is, or if he was just kind of like writing a book, a fiction book with some, you know, thematic elements, I don't know. No, but for sure. Yeah, the book's it, terrifying. It is a crazy story. And I totally agree with you. I think if that was your primer to like demonology, which I think it was for so many people because it was yeah, for sure. ca captivating in its own way, especially I read it about the same age you did that after you read that, yeah, you like walk into a room and like you flip like a switch and the light bulb goes out and you're like, the demons are here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, I mean, I remember um, there's a scene and we're kind of going down this rabbit trail, but whatever. Um, there's this scene in the book and you're kind of you're probably going to be like, oh, yeah, there's this scene where like they're trying to vote out the pastor of this church. Oh, yeah. And there's one lady. That. There's like one lady that's going to break the difference. It's going to make the difference. And the demons somehow know that she's going to vote to retain the pastor. And so the demons are trying to get to this lady. And I think there's a demon named Stroke or something like that. These <laughs> demons have names like Stroke and Heart Attack and like yes. Lost. And they yes. have these names. And the demon tries to attack the lady and he bounces off the other lady walking with her who happens to be an angel in disguise. And I remember thinking that and I was like, oh, man, this this lady at my church just had a heart attack. You know, I went to a church like 15,000 people. Oh, this lady just had a heart attack. There must be a demon behind that. Right. Oh my gosh, there's a demon behind that. Um, and it, it just gave me like a really unrealistic view of the world. Like sometimes people have heart attacks because they don't eat well or because they're old or because they have genetic issues. And, you know, there's not a demon hiding behind every, um, you know, every rock and bush and whatever. Um, and I think that brings up like one misconception about Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. Yes, exactly. Um, Satan, as far as we know, can't read minds. Um, he can't read hearts. He doesn't know the inner workings of our minds and thoughts. Um, there's a very 
very small likelihood that there's a demon in the room with me right now. Um, you know, there's not an infinite number of demons or angels for that matter. Mm -hmm. Um, so this idea that like demons are everywhere and they're behind every, every evil in the world. Like I, I don't think that that really plays out with what scripture seems to tell us about how scripture or about how Satan and how demons function. Do you think that's fair? Oh, absolutely. I think that really does speak to the strange connection we have with demonology where we either make it too big or we make it too small. But I rarely hear like a very balanced treatment of it because that is the critical piece that Satan is finite and contingent like other created beings. So he's like you said, he's not God's equal. He does not possess divine attributes at all. And so by virtue of that fact, he is, like you said about Luther, well done getting the quote in, appreciate that, <laughs> that he is, he is God's devil. And that I think in itself is like the right and a proper starting point, because if we make too much of him, uh, then we're, that's likely to skew everything that we do and include and included in that is the likelihood to skew even well-intentioned prayer or well-intentioned uh, work of the Lord. So for instance, I previously attended a church that had, I think, a really good conception of spiritual warfare, was concerned because there was a reality there. There's no doubt about that. And But that kind of spilled over into kind of more nuanced, just circumstantial things or things that were surely within God's sovereign control, of course, but that were more circumstantial. And one of those things, like I mentioned to you one time, was during the time of practice for leading uh, worship through music, if for some reason on that particular morning there was like difficulties with the sound system, somebody would inevitably pray Satan out of the sound system, which I appreciate in terms of being aware that Satan stands in opposition to the gospel and that he is actively pursuing that. But I would sometimes leave those sessions and think, it, maybe it's a great thing. Like if we can get Satan trapped in our sound system this morning and he's not omnipresent, then we should just let all the rest of the churches of the world like rejoice that we've got him tied up in like the cords today. And, yeah, exactly. You know, like every, Ghostbuster style. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who are you going to call? But you, know, but you know what? That's actually not a bad way to think about it because I think there's something wonderfully empowering about knowing who Satan is, knowing that he's incredibly limited, knowing that God is all powerful and in control even of him to relate it to like Ghostbusters in a sense. Because like there's something about Ghostbusters that, you know, implies that there's a, a powerlessness there real, really. Um, but also I should warn you that I've never seen any of the Ghostbusters for the record. Seriously? That's the response everybody gives me. But right, I know what I've we're doing never, at Christmas. I've never, I've never seen those. I mean, so, when you were here for the summer, it was like Jason Bourne style. It was like Jason Bourne mania. Like we're going to watch the Ghostbuster movies. Yeah. We need to get Matt Damon on this podcast as Jason we do. Bourne. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. But we'll, we, we could try. We'll get our legal team on it. So, yeah. so what I wanted to ask though is was something you said about kind of kind of the practical implications of Satan, the adversary, and the tension between the fact that we are sinful people, and as kind of Jonathan Edwards says, like says we don't need any outside or exogenous influence to cause our foot to slip into sin; that we can do that very much on our own. So, what is Satan's role then in tempting? Does he cause us to sin? Is he uh, active in baiting us? Can he bait us? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think he certainly can. Um, and, you know, I think it bears saying, like, Satan is just one, one demon, like I said. So when we talk about, like, can Satan do this, can Satan do that, I think we also are kind of using that as shorthand to be like those demons that are following him as well. So Yeah, absolutely. You now, you know, we see in Scripture – Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and tries to tempt him. And obviously that's a unique circumstance, but in some senses, it's also not a unique circumstance. Um, so I think we, we have to acknowledge that there are probably times that demons do get involved in trying to tempt Christians um, to abandon their faith, um, to think that sin is not sinful or to think that it's not a big deal. Um, you know, I think we're faced sometimes with the same kinds of challenges that um, Adam and Eve face in the garden, right? We, we know what's right. We know what God has commanded us. 
um, but we self-justify. Now, that could just be us self-justifying. Like you said, we're perfectly capable of figuring out how to sin and convince ourselves it's okay without any help from Satan or demons or anyone. But I think there probably are times too. I know there have been times in my life where I've done something and I just, I don't have any idea why I thought that was okay at the time. Um, and I'm not, uh, I'm not going to say, oh, I know for a fact there was a demon whispering in my ear because right. I don't know that for a fact. Um, but at the same time, it's very possible that for whatever reason I was being um, kind of assaulted that day or that time, you know, that period in my life um, by Satan's forces. Um, but I think one thing that we need to recognize, and this is where I think reformed Christians have an advantage over other, um, streams of Christian thought is we know that if we are gods, that we are gods, there's Amen. nothing that Satan can do about that. There's nothing that we can do about that. Um, if God's claimed us, then he's claimed us. Amen. And, um, you know, there are, there are seasons and times why God might allow us to sort of fall under attack, um, you know, we see that in the book of Job. We just finished the study in Job, and it was a phenomenal study um, where we went through the whole book. And, you know, Satan is only present for the first two chapters, in, you know, explicitly. Um, but you kind of hear, and one of the things we found is that the accusations that Satan brings against Job in the, the heavenly courtroom, they come up again and again in the voice of the counselors. And so, you know, you have to wonder, and there's actually a really weird scene um, where I think it's uh, Eliphaz. He actually talks about this like vision that he had. And there was a dark, like a dark entity that like came towards him and, and he saw it. And then he had this vision um, and he acts like he was getting revelation from God. Mm -hmm. But the things that he had revealed to him are the same things that Satan kind of accuses Job of in the heavenly courtroom. And so we see that not only does Satan or demons, you know, have potential to influence us as Christians, but they have the potential to influence us through influencing people around us. And that impacts our lives as well. That's really well said, I think. that, And that's interesting because I hadn't really thought about that or considered the source of where Eliphaz was kind of drawing from that. But it does absolutely comport with what the Satan had said earlier in terms of his initial accusation. I love Job. I think that's that's a really good balance because on the one hand, we're seeing that the spiritual warfare is real. It's, it's present. It's something that as Christians, we ought to be concerned about. It's why we're encouraged to put on the armor of God. And yet at the same time, I love the opening of Job, not only because of how it speaks of Job's character in all areas of his life, but I love that Satan must report before God and he must give an account and you see even there, that relationship is clearly defined, that there are, is no actual, as you said before, true struggle of power, and that even, he's just, I just love what you said before, like he is God's devil. Like even when Paul speaks about a messenger of Satan coming to him in the flesh, it implies that sometimes God allows temptation uh, or Satan to essentially exert that influence on our lives such that we might bear fruit in accordance with righteousness. And that is in some ways a strange way in which he shows love. And, and I love that because certainly Satan, when he's bringing forth that temptation, he's trying to stand in direct opposition of the gospel. And that is his direct aim and his purpose. And yet unwittingly, unknowingly, because God outsmarts him every time, God can use that in such a way to really continue to reform and redeem us. Like redemption is better than perfection. So it's amazing yeah. that God uses that in such a way to really outwit what Satan thinks is a really clever plan. And there's no doubt that, that he thinks that, and I'm sure has, has a ton of hubris as well. So one of the things I wanted to ask is, what do we do then with certain passages of scripture where there's like a clear indwelling of a demonic presence? I think you already said to some extent that if we know that we have been called and elected of God, then ultimately the victory is ours. But what about uh, times in the New Testament where we kind of encounter that more demonic presence? I mean, how should how should we view that? What should we do with that? Yeah, and so I think one of the things that we also kind of as more as modern Christians, we minimize is the the reality of demonic possession and how sometimes things that we might think are mental illness may have other causes. 
Um, now I'm not, I'm not one of the people that's like depression is just a sin issue. Or like, there's no such thing as mental chemical imbalances. Like all of those things are real. But, um, when we look in the scripture and we see, um, especially in, in the book of Luke, where he actually makes some distinctions between people who have, um, he uses the word that, that later we get, uh, the word epilepsy from. So he makes some distinctions even between people who appear to have a, a physically related mental illness and people who are demonically oppressed or demonically possessed. Um, we have to recognize that there's no good reason to think that those things don't happen anymore. Um, I think we kind of live our lives like those things don't happen anymore, but I don't, yes. I don't see a scriptural reason to think they do. Um, but like I said earlier, there seems to be like, no demonic activity happening. And then all of a sudden the gospels, it's like, boom, demons are everywhere. Um, and then, you know, we see a little bit in, in acts where Paul talks about how, you know, Satan prevented him from doing this. And he talks about this messenger from Satan. Um, so, you know, we have a good reason to think that some of that demonic activity may have slowed down a little bit, that maybe it's not as prominent as it was. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that has to do with the victory on the cross that all this, you know, Athanasius, um, in one of his books talks about how the cross brings the end to idolatry. And for him, idolatry is primarily driven by demon worship. And so he, he wants to point out the fact that anywhere that the gospel goes, idolatry starts to fade. And he, he ties that to a, the real fact that the gospel defeats demons. Um, and as the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth and is still going to the ends of the earth, darkness is pushed back. But that being said, there are still times where we look at um, we look at somebody who's who seems to be demon possessed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've I've never experienced that directly. Um, I've seen a lot of people that I think either were on drugs <laughs> um, or were faking it. Um, that was actually one of the weirdest phenomena when I was in in like youth group was. Um, having a, having a demonic experience of some sort was like a badge of honor. It was like only the holiest people get attacked by demons. Um, <laughs> and I actually remember like making up stories as an impressionable, like 17 year old kid after reading uh, Frank Peretti's books, making up stories that sounded like, Oh, I, I, you know, I've encountered demons. I, I, but I dealt with them in Jesus name. I dealt with them. And it's, it's like, um, there's this, there's this sort of weird, obsession and also like i said sort of like a pride issue of if if demons are attacking you then you must really be like a big deal and satan's worried about you um satan's not worried about us and if he is then there's good reason because we serve a good god but it has nothing to do with me right um you know there's there's all sorts of stuff that goes on but i think as far as like um you know, the question that I hear sometimes is, well, can a Christian become possessed by the devil or by a demon? Right. And I think scripturally we, we have to say no. I don't have it in front of me, but there's there's a passage where Jesus – and I don't think he was intending to give like a, a, like a lecture on demonology when he, he taught this. But there's a section where he talks about how if you cast a demon out and you don't replace it with something or the demon goes out and then he comes back with basically like with seven friends and repossesses the person. And um, the point of that, uh, one of the points I think of that passage is there's only room for one kind of spirit indwelling us. Either the Holy Spirit is indwelling us or a demon is indwelling us. Um, but it can't be both because how could a demon indwell someone in whom the Holy Spirit is indwelling? Um, so I don't think that Christians can be possessed by, by demons. But I, I think... I think there's good reason to believe um, both scripturally and kind of anecdotally that non-Christians certainly can be possessed by demons and can right be on. influenced by demons. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, you got to be careful what you read on the internet, but there's a lot of stuff that you can, you can run into where you'll see stuff that's going on and there's not a lot of great explanations for it. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, not to get too gruesome, but there was that, that incident with, with bath salts or something like that, some new drug. And a guy literally like killed a woman on the street and ate her face. Um, now, I, I don't know, maybe the drugs were doing that, but that certainly seems like a pretty extreme thing um, to just sort of happen. Um, I look at things like that where, where humans are going beyond just sort of like the boundaries of, of all instinct that humans have. Um, 
in in sort of ordinary circumstances. Um, that's where I look at it and I go, man, that that seems like it could be a, a case of a demon possession or some sort of demonic activity. And it just got real, but that it's it it's a serious, it's a really serious topic. And you're right in that, at least in my limited experience, everybody has some connection with this. If you've been part of any kind of Christian culture for any length of time, so it's as if we're aware that it is something serious. And, and by the way, the passage you spoke about is in Matthew 12, and that's one that I've always. I think if you're like me, and maybe nobody else is, but you read that and you're a bit like, what does that even mean? Yeah. So, yeah, that's 1243. So uh, the Christ says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. Yeah. And so Christ, Christ is teaching, um, he's teaching more or less something about eschatology. He's talking about um, kind of what happens in the end. And, um, but, but this isn't directly like an eschatological teaching though. That's the weird thing is it's, it's, it's kind of enigmatic, but it does seem like, there's a like a capacity that that humans have for kind of hosting spirits of some sort. Um, now, I guess the question could be asked is, could an angel possess a person under the right circumstances? I, I don't know. Or is that some sort of like new ability that demons got when they fell? I don't know. Um, and then the scripture doesn't say anything. So that's kind of one of those speculative questions that we're, we're never going to know. Um, but yeah, it seems to me like this is at least tangentially saying there's a sort of a capacity and um once that capacity is full it's full and so mm -hmm. i remember being taught in youth group that this this was you know they were teaching it like this is an explicit teaching of the scripture that well when the demons come out of you then you've got to fill yourself with the holy spirit so then they can't come back and i don't think it's it's anything that um that direct but i think there's a principle here that the demons, there's a, there's a physics, some sort of physical interaction. There's a, there's a, almost like a spatial interaction that happens with demon possession. And, um, you know, obviously the indwelling of the Holy Spirit isn't a spatial thing. It's not a physical thing. But like I said, if, if the Holy Spirit is living in you, then how could a, could a demon also be living in you? Right. Exactly. Um, it just, it can't, it can't happen. So I don't think that as Christians, we have to fear demon possession. Um, but I, I think, you know, you can still run into situations where demons are heavily influencing people Absolutely. Um, who are Christians. And I think there's a seriousness to that that um, probably also comes along with the fact that Christians in general just don't pray as often as they should. And they don't pray as seriously as they should. Um, you know, there's that one, uh, there's that passage um, where Jesus comes back from something and his disciples have this this demon possessed person or demon um, demon oppressed person demonized person, and they couldn't cast the demon out. And Jesus says, "Oh well, this one only comes out by fasting and prayer." And then Jesus mm -hmm. cast the demon out. And um, there's a link between prayer and and demon uh, exorcism, if you want to call it that. There's a link between praying and um, casting out demons or pushing back demons. And like I said, like everywhere the gospel goes, darkness has to recede. And right. so I think, I think honestly, I don't think that demons are re really a super present reality in, um, in Christian cultures. Now our, our culture is very quickly becoming not a Christian culture, but the gospel was a very prominent feature in American history for a very long time. Um, so I, I, I'm always a little suspicious when I hear about, you know, people in Western civilizations, Western cultures where the gospel has been prominent, um, having all this demonic activity, but I'm not at all suspicious when I hear about, you know, um, tribes that are still practicing animism and, and sure. voodoo and witchcraft running into demonic issues and, and experiences that missionaries are reporting. I'm not at all suspicious of those. Um, I think they're very real. I totally agree with you on that. I think our culture is one that has pushed that idea away as antiquated, that there would be that kind of influence. But 
what I think Jesus is doing in Matthew 12 is making something very plain for us to understand. And that is another reason to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. So as kind of you said, in a way to, to displace other influences that might somehow invade or influence our thinking. And even if as Christians, we know that our eternal security is preserved in God's hands and that the attack from the devil can only in some ways just disrupt the harmony that we have with God, but not our identity. It still is important for us to remember that as the scripture says, if he is the God of this world, then he is ruling wherever sin is present. So if we have sin in our lives, that where we're unrepentant or it's frequent and regular, then Satan does have a foothold being there directly or not, because that is exactly his objective is always to disrupt and to bring disunity. So at the same time, there's this tension between understanding that the armor of God is a real thing and it's been given to us so that we might be protected, so that we might have victory. But at the same time, I always worry if we give Satan too much credit for things that we think he is doing, when it could just be God's good grace to test us in various ways through allowing temptation or not, just through basic circumstances or hardships or hurdles. So we have to sort through all of that stuff. And that's why I think this conversation is helpful. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the things I learned from reading Job too is um, one of the features that we pointed out again and again is that we know as the readers that these um, these tragic events and these illnesses and you know things being taken away from Job they're they're done by Satan. Um, right. We know that Job at no point attributes any of that to anyone except the Lord. Um, right. And he's never, he's not chastised for that. It's not like chapter 38 comes around and God's like, well, you know, that was actually Satan. That wasn't me. It was Satan. But, but we'll get on to, you know, we'll get on to the next point. Um, everywhere in the scripture that Satan is active, we also see that he's active because God has allowed him to be active because allowing him to act in a certain way forwards God's agenda. Yes. Um, and then, you know, that goes back to that Luther quote that, the, the devil is God's devil. And I actually just came across this in, in um, Calvin here in the Institutes in book, uh, book one, chapter 14, section 18. He's talking about um, he's talking about God's sovereignty. And he he basically um, points out. Let me see if I can find the actual quote. God, therefore, does not allow Satan to have dominion over the souls of believers, but only gives over to his sway the impious and unbelieving whom he deigns not to number among his flock. For the devil is said to have undisputed possession of the world until he is dispossessed by Christ. In like manner, he is said to blind all who do not believe the gospel and to do his own work in the children of disobedience. Um, and what he's saying here is that the people who fall under Satan's sway are, are the people that God has allowed to fall under Satan's sway. The people that God has claimed as his own will never fall under Satan's sway. Now, I don't think that Calvin is saying um, that they can't be influenced or affected by Satan. Um, we know that they can because Paul himself in Scripture says that this thorn in his flesh has come to him from Satan. But it's not like he begs God to take Satan's authority to do that away. He begs God to give him grace, to, to allow right. him to suffer through it. He does ask for it to be taken away. There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong um, for praying that God would put an end to your suffering or that God would um, resolve a difficult situation for you or help you with that. But um, we see clear evidence that Paul at least seemed to think that this was from Satan and it's in scripture. So we know it's true. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what Calvin is saying is that the world, um, the world is, was Satan's until he was dispossessed by Christ. Um, and then once Christ died on the cross, Satan's power over the world is broken. So even, even the rest of the world, the non-Christian world, his, his power over that is, is fading. It's, it's ethereal and it's slipping through his fingers. Um, you know, there's the, the comparison I always hear about there was D-Day, you know, when the Allied troops stormed the beach. And then there was V-Day when the war was over. Right. And we're living in this in-between world. You know, Christ, Christ obtained victory on the cross and in the resurrection. Um, he obtained victory on the cross and the resurrection vindicated uh, and, and finalized that victory. 
but we're still in this in-between time where Satan is still um, Satan is still the god of this world. I mean, Paul uses present tense language in that. Um, but at the same time, that age is fading. That age is coming to an end. Um, and even that, that even gets into sort of eschatology, and maybe we can talk about that more in a future uh, episode. But um, some of the differences between the eschatological views have to do with what is Satan doing right now? Right. Um, where where are we in the millennium, and is Satan bound? So right. you have some groups that look at the world and go, there's no way Satan is bound. There's no way that he's bound. And, you know, those are mostly the premillennialists, the dispensationalists. They look at it and say, no, no, the world is completely under Satan's control. There's no way he's bound. And then you have some of the amillennialists and the postmillennialists who are saying, no, the gospel is what bound, what bound Satan. So Satan is bound. He can't. He can no longer fully deceive the nations. His power is fading away. He's a defeated foe, and it's it's simply we're simply in the now and not yet where Christ has defeated him but not destroyed him yet. Mm -hmm. um, Satan's kind of waiting for execution, um, to kind of put it in that language. That makes sense to me. I mean, the, there's a lot that we need to continue to do. I think as Christians, as even those who have been redeemed to remember that we do play an active role in preparing our minds, preparing ourselves for battle against the darkness, uh, especially just being influenced in ways that are not salvific, but in ways that certainly hurt our witness or certainly damage our harmony with God. You know, I like that in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, lest Satan should get advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So that implication, you know, implicit in there being this understanding that be aware, be alert, as Peter says. And, you know, David, Peter, Paul, these guys were like severely challenged by temptation through Satan. And yet, of course, their their eternal destiny was never in question. So I love that there is still, still limits. So I think like a, a good way to kind of close out this conversation is I wanted to get your opinion on what do we do practically then? And what do we do to, to arm ourselves? What do we do to be aware in a way that's like healthy and understands the limitations of Satan, but also in some way respects the fact that he is real, alive and present in the world? Yeah, well, I think, um, I guess, you know, obviously when we look at scripture, um, all of scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching and rebuke and equipping and all of that. Um, but, Especially, I think, when we look at the way that Jesus interacted with demons, um, we see kind of three distinct things that are going on. You know, there's the temptation and Satan himself comes to test and to tempt and to try Jesus and to try to pull him away from his, his devotion to God. And, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of name it and claim it preachers and a lot of really super charismatic people that are going to go into spiritual warfare. And it's about um, naming demons and gaining power over them by knowing what they're called and all this just nonsense. Um, if anybody could have just commanded the demons, and he did at times, but if anybody could have just said, I'm not going to deal with this right now, it was Jesus. But he didn't. He went to the scriptures and he, right. he disproved Satan's lies by going to the, to the scriptures. Um, so I think that's the number one thing that Christians need to do in order to protect themselves, sort of a, um, sort of a defensive thing is to know and wield the scriptures. And that's why when we're talking about the armor of God, that the scriptures are called the sword of the spirit is that, um, you know, if you, if you're an attacking force, you attack where, um, if they can defend themselves and stop you from hurting them, that's, that's maybe annoying but if they can't attack you back then you can just you can just pick away at them until they wear down but when you start to speak truth from the scriptures um you know resist the devil and he must flee from you that's a reality and that's what jesus did is he quoted the scriptures he went back to the scriptures not only to refute the devil's lies but also to affirm to himself the truth of who he was yes absolutely um, so I think that's the first thing. The second thing that we see is that is that instance where Jesus says, you know, some of these some demons only come out by prayer and fasting. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that making a, a regular practice of praying that God would protect you, um, you know, textual questions aside, the Lord's prayer includes um, a petition for God to protect us from from the devil. And I don't think that Christians take seriously enough that the one prayer that Christ gives us as a model includes 
prayer that God would protect us from spiritual darkness and spiritual forces. Um, so praying that God would protect you, praying that God would protect your family and protect those around you. Um, I think that's the second big thing that we can do. And the third is to recognize that as, um, as God's adopted sons and daughters, um, you know, Paul has this weird enigmatic passage in First Corinthians, and he's talking about lawsuits among believers. And he just kind of throws out there, don't you know that we'll judge angels someday? Um, right. So if we're going to have in, in the eschaton, we're going to have authority over God's faithful angelic messengers, his faithful angelic servants, then it, it's reasonable to say that as his emissaries and his ambassadors and as his sons and daughters, um, we have authority over the lower demons of this world. Um, obviously, we exercise that authority through what I just said. But to recognize that as a Christian, I don't have to be afraid of demons. I don't have to be afraid of Satan. Um, you know, even beyond what we talked about, about the fact that for the most part, there's a limited number of demons and things. That's probably not what's going on when your car doesn't start. Right, exactly. not what's going on when the computer doesn't boot up or when the sound system. It might be, could be. Um, could also be an angel keeping you from getting in a car accident that morning. Who knows? So you sure. pray and you seek God's will and you you exercise the practical wisdom that he's given us in the scriptures and you live your life as best you can by his moral laws and his precepts. And um, you live as a child of the king. And one of the things, you know, I've been reading Athanasius, which is why it's coming up so much, is Athanasius talks a lot about Christ as the king and the effects that Christ as the king has. And he doesn't go there in so far in what I'm reading, but there's an extension of that that applies to us as well. And kind of a, a more theologically accurate way to say what would Jesus do is more to say, um, how would the son of the king act? How would the son of the, the king of the universe act? And then do likewise as best you can. Um, and the son of, you know, Jesus was not afraid of demons. There was no point anywhere in his ministry where he seemed intimidated or afraid or nervous around them. Um, Amen. Luther, Luther was a weird, crazy monk at times. Um, but there's, and I don't know if this is true. <laughs> there's no way to verify it. But I think I know where we're going point. with this. Yeah, there's, a, there's an account at one point of him waking up in his bed, sitting up in the night and seeing Satan sitting at the foot of the bed and him going, oh, yeah. it's just you. And then he goes back to sleep because as a redeemed child of God, Satan has no power other than intimidation and deception. Um, and yes. when you are not able to be intimidated and you know your scriptures well enough not to be deceived, there's really nothing left that he can do to you. Um, you know, obviously, like I said, he can he can influence people around you and that can have real impact in your life. But as far as direct um, attacks on us, I'm 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 not I'm just not scared. Um, I used to be terrified. Like I said, I read Present Darkness and it terrified me because every single thing that went wrong wasn't it wasn't just that's the way life is that's how things happen now it was oh my gosh i'm getting attacked by demons what do i do yeah exactly so don't be afraid know your scriptures um and pray i mean it's it's as complicated as that but it's also as simple as that i think boom that was like a mic drop like s spiritual boom. warfare style i do love that first of all that the sword uh is an offensive weapon yeah. Like we tend to think of the armor as, you know, I'm just trying to survive the day. I'm just trying to make it through, but we can go on the attack. So I'm totally with you on that. The idea of, of being in the scriptures, praying and understand your role as ambassador, child of the king and all the authority that comes with that. Whether or not the Luther story is for real, because I've heard that too. And I had to like reread that several times because I was like, what? But I do love that he was just like, oh, hey, what's up? And just was like, yeah. I'm going to go back to bed. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love that. So I think if people want to read something in particular, one of the things that's been super helpful for me, sure it's a book you're familiar with, is Thomas Brooks' Precious Rem Remedies Against Satan's Devices. That is a fantastic, practical primer on so many things we've been talking about. He probably says it way better. But it does, I think, draw an appropriate weight on the role of Satan in the life of the Christian and the, the three things which we've already talked about. But that is like something that I reread every now and again, because it just gets my mindset in the right place. And if, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Yeah. And um, I haven't listened to it yet, but um, there has been another podcast this week. Um, Joe Thorne does a podcast called Doctrine and Devotion. And um, I, 
I guess that I haven't listened to it, but I saw as I was flipping through Facebook, I saw that uh, they did an episode on spiritual warfare this uh, week as well. And the picture was a guy praying on his knees. So I'm assuming you probably, they probably ended up going basically the same direction as we did. Um, but um, you know, it's, it's a real thing that needs to be discussed. And so, you know, equip yourselves, not just by reading the scriptures, obviously do that, but look at what godly Christians around you are saying and what Christians through the ages have said, um, you know, and, and even, even looking at some of the sort of off the wall stuff that people have said, you know, St. Anthony, Athanasius, again, he, he wrote this biography of St. Anthony and St. Anthony was this monk who went out into the desert and got in like wrestling matches with demons is, is the way that they present it. Um, but there's a reality as far as how people have been thinking about demons throughout history that we should know is part of our Christian tradition as well. I do appreciate the WWE like component of wrestling with demons. Like I do, I yes. always love the passages of scripture where Christ is directly confronting because it's not a struggle of power. I just love that he comes in and throws it down. It just like, you know, right. spiritual elbow drop. And it, it's fantastic. I mean, when the gathering pigs just shoot off the cliff and that freaks everybody out and they're like, you got to get out of here. I, I just yeah. love that whole passage. You know, th there's not, I think the I think we make the Bible a lot more um, mysterious and complicated than it has to be sometimes. For but that sure. passage is one of those ones that I look at and I'm like, what the egg is going on? Here? <laughs> what what? First of all, why do they beg them? Why do they beg him not to be sentenced to the abyss? What is that all about? I and agree. then they want to go into the pigs. OK. All right. I guess maybe that's better than the abyss. I don't know. And then they just, the pigs just run into the water and they're dead. And I'm like, so where did the demons yeah. go? Did they end up in the abyss? Yeah, exactly. That's what I think too. It, it's a crazy story. And isn't it like a ton of pigs? Aren't we talking about like yeah, it's like a thousand swine or something like that? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of pigs. It's a lot of bacon. I mean, yeah, that's a ton of bacon. And I've often thought for the people who owned the pigs, were they like, yo, where our pigs just jumped off a cliff and Jesus was like, well, the you know, devils the demons. won't do that to you. Yeah, mean, the yeah, the demons. Pigs don't like demons. demons. Probably should have no. asked the pigs first. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's wild. So I do love that. Like after this conversation, I'm actually pumped up. Like I'm stoked. And I hope it's a, an encouragement and ministry to others who maybe have been thinking about this or need to think about it more. Just how loved we are in Christ, how the gospel does set us free from the God of this world. And, you know, it, we should just feel empowered like Luther to set up, to sit up in bed and just say, yeah, what's up? And then spiritually elbow drop it. So like, are there, I should ask you this, probably the most important question. Are there, first of all, this other podcast you spoke of, I'm very interested that there are other reform podcasts before us. So that's interesting besides us. Uh, second question yeah, it's is weird. There's like a whole is, thing going on. Yeah. It's so strange. It's like, it's a movement. The other question I had was, is there any other part of our conversation that relates relates directly to Ghostbusters? Um, probably not. Since, know. again, I know nothing I about... Would like Isn't to there like see a new it, Ghostbusters movie? There was a new Ghostbusters movie, um, but it was all women. I heard it was pretty good. I would like to see the story of the pigs incorporated into Ghostbusters. <laughs> I'd like to see them catch a ghost and then let the ghost go into a, a herd of pigs who then maybe like runs out into traffic or something. I was going to say, know. what would those pigs do then? I don't know. And why would there be a bunch of pigs in the middle of the city? But that brings up a whole other question. Why were there a bunch? Why did someone have a herd of pigs in, in Israel? Like what were these pigs for? I, were, I've thought they about that too. The pigs to? Yeah. I've thought about that too. It's there's, so there, this is one of those things that I presume we'll get to heaven as God brings us into more wonderful levels of knowledge and full understanding there's going to be details of that. They're going to be like, ah, oh, okay, that makes sense. But oh, yeah. for right now, like you said, it's just a strange account, but it just shows this wonderful power of Christ. But the whole negotiation of that where they're like, yeah, just send us into the pigs or can we go into the pigs? They ask permission and he's basically like, yeah, do your thing. And they jump off. It's weird too, because it's like these particular demons were like really, really afraid of the abyss, but none of the other demons ever mentioned it. That's like the weird thing is all the other demons right. that get cast out. They're like, they just go. Nobody's like, right. Hey, can we maybe, can we maybe like go into that tree over there instead of whatever? Nope. They just, they just go. So I think there's a lot, a lot that we don't understand and a lot that we can't understand. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to look, 
you know, we're going to, we're going to learn from Jesus directly and it's going to be a whole different game. Absolutely. I think this was a third episode that exceeded my every expectation for feeling empowered to fight back honestly and to understand my role as a child of the King and all of the rights pertaining to that. So this has been a blessing for me. So how can people uh, track with us if they want to continue to listen to us talk about crazy things? Well, um, they can subscribe on iTunes. Um, that would be the best thing and leave a review and that helps other people find the show. Um, it also helps us know uh, if we are doing a good job or if we are correct in our suspicions that we are amateurs and everyone hates us. Um, <laughs> but you can also email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter at reformedbrohood. Um, that character limit's really killing us on that one. Um, there's also a Google Plus page if anybody in the yeah, world Yeah, hit us Google up on Plus. Google Plus. Google Plus, yeah. We're, we're yeah. bringing Google Plus back. Yeah, they, they made me – they literally made me have Google Plus to put our photo on the Gmail account. That was the only reason we have Google Plus. Um, and you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com uh, slash reformedbrotherhood. So any of those um, forums, you can give us ideas. You can uh, tell us that we are crazy. You can argue with us um, or you can ask us why we said what the egg because um, – we did, and nobody knows why. So that confused. But yeah, so that's many the way people. to get all of us. Oh, I'm sure it will. That's the best part. All right, do you have any closing thoughts for the night? Uh, just hit us up on Facebook. Ask uh, what the egg means. If you're more confused about that than the Gadarene swine thing, then you probably should be. So, yeah, hit yeah, us up I on Facebook. We've done our we always, job. I think we've done a fantastic job here. Yeah, hit us up on online somewhere: Twitter, Facebook. Subscribe. Let us know what kind of things you're wrestling with, and maybe we can make a conversation of it. All right, we'll see you next week.